Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. A note of warning, this podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast, bringing you high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country for the week of September 4th, 2019. I'm Billy Jensen, and this is Owen Michael. Hello. And our guest today is Eric Rossoff. Eric, you're a uh, retired Burbank police lieutenant with 31 years and law enforcement experience. And you started two training and consulting organizations. You started the Career Survival Group, which is an anti-harassment, harassment prevention training organization for fire departments across the country. And the Campus Safety Group, which is focused on emergency response plans for K through 12 and college level, including natural disasters, as well as human threats, which we're seeing all too often these days. Welcome, Eric. Eric, what have you been working on these days? Um, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's been pleasantly busy. Uh, I am blessed that after uh, a wonderful career in law enforcement, I still kind of get to keep my uh, my hand in the mix and uh, work with professionals, both uh, uh, my uh, friends in fire service and uh, my passion really is campus safety. And uh, through both of my um, consultation groups, I get to uh, travel, uh, meet with folks, and uh, share some experience and expertise I have related to um, both of those issues. Mm-hmm. So as the school year gets started, you know, all the kids are back to school now. What's on your mind right now in terms of school safety issues? Um, I really, uh, you know, I've got a 15-year-old daughter, and I send her to school every day, mm-hmm. confident uh, that my educators are doing the best that they possibly can to provide for the safety, but also aware of what's going through her mind and their minds and such. And uh, truly, as an expert in campus safety, uh, what I'm most focused on, I think, is trying to enlist uh, parents and students at an appropriate age to understand just some of the basics. Um, and the reason I focus on the parents and students is uh, the fact remains that there are systems, safety systems in uh, education that are designed to provide for the safety of students, staff, visitors on campus. And for many reasons, not the least of which, which being, you know, an uh, incredibly tight budget, uh, those systems aren't audited as frequently as they should be. And frequently when you do an after action report to a threshold type event on a campus, we find out that equipment wasn't in place. 
supplies. There was no training that was supposed to go along. The system failed, and we could have seen before the incident that the system was going to fail. My interest in reaching out to parents and students is uh, there's no politics in that, that if I can get parents involved and students involved to look behind the curtain and ask knowledgeable questions, we will see that some of these things are broken and there might be more of a motivation uh, for the, the school district, the, you know, the politicians that are involved to step up and, and uh, fix things from that are the, broken. From the ground up. So from the, gra- from the grassroots efforts, right, absolutely. Right. And what would you tell somebody? Just what are, the, what are the three biggest things that you should do as a student if something happens to start on your campus like that? It, uh, if at the time of the event uh, is you know, typically what we uh, refer to, there's the run, hide, fight. There's many types of, I'd be aware of what situational awareness is key. And, you know, cell phones and, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, there are many distractions. There's always been many distractions to a student on campus. But uh, now that we seem to be even more distracted. So the three biggest things I would say, number one, please take the time to be aware of where you're where at any given place that you might be on a campus, where you are and where your potential exits might be. Mm-hmm. And if something starts to develop, it, as simple as, you know, we hear this, see something, say something. But if something starts to develop, distance yourself from whatever that is as quickly as you possibly can. Um, I, that situational awareness also uh, would cover into be aware of your entire campus, not just you know, the one door that you always come in and out of, you know, as you're going into a building or into a classroom, but are there alternatives even up to windows and such? Because I don't want them to have to formulate a plan in the middle, in the middle of, of an event, That's right. but we also don't want to plan so much that we paralyze them, that it's just uh, even, and I'll take this beyond school, you know, you go into the theater, mm-hmm. look around what's going on, you know, and where you can get in, get out. Yeah, especially, you know, when you talk about fires, you know, that was the biggest thing, the thing that that, that happened at the um, uh, the Great White Show is that, and this happens a lot with fires, is that you go in, you know, once a fire starts, the door that you went through is the door that you're you're going to want to go out. So the, and, was that Rhode Island, uh, early two thousands? Yes, I think yep, is where mm-hmm. it happened. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was an overcrowded club. And overcrowded club. The they did were. pyro, you know, and then plus it, things are confusing and yeah. the lights are off, and you know, mm-hmm. you yeah, maybe have smoke. But you you know that it's like in sort of natural reaction. I came from there. Right. Sure, this is where I'm going to go out. But we also know that you know, at least in America, we have there's going to be fire exits. In, you know, wherever you are. So yeah. we were just uh, discussing off air about uh, what happened at Parkland uh, in Florida and with uh, Marjorie Stoneman and how that sort of um, – we're also talking about uh, tunnel vision and things like that and adrenaline going, all those kinds of things. But this one in particular, what, can you tell us a little bit about what yeah. we're, what any, we're um, any, um Any sc- – I'm going to go back to just school districts. Sure. There are already safety policies, programs, and processes in place because we can anticipate what some of the more uh, dangerous things might be during any given day. Mm -hmm. And as a result of um, uh, researching those events, we try to design the best policies to overcome them. And in those policies, we have uh, two distinct things that we're trying to accomplish. The first is, can we prevent it? That's the best hope of any policy we have. But we know that we can't prevent something like an earthquake. Mm -hmm. So then the second part of our policy and what we really work on is the idea about can we avoid the otherwise avoidable injuries or maybe even death. And Stoneman Douglas is is part of that, that regardless of what might not have happened before this event took place, I've read the articles about various law enforcement agencies that have been alerted to that this young man, troubled young man was out Mm -hmm. there. But as soon as he arrived at the school, something bad was going to happen. 
And there were systems in place to, that shouldn't have been as bad as it was. Uh, I think you may have heard that there was a, a, one of the alarms went off, a fire alarm went off, and students came out as a result of the fire alarm, and that exposed them to extreme danger. However, a series of events before that, uh, there should have been a lockdown that went before the fire alarm ever was set off. And then the students and the teachers in those rooms would have had a protocol that says, don't come out into the hallway just yet. Mm-hmm. Let's wait to see what this, if we're, if we put you on a lockdown, now there's a thing to come outside. Everybody just stay where, I, where, you're, where you're at. It's, it's those types of, I won't even say it's nuance. I'd say it's principle-based, make sure that we're doing the safety things that we're supposed to be doing anyway, and make sure that we're doing them well. That's our baseline. Um, and again, it goes back to, could we have prevented it? Maybe. Could we absolutely have uh, eliminated some of the death and injury? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's the responsibility, I think, at this point of students and parents. You think it's getting better? Not necessarily, uh, because as um, I think there is more awareness and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the courage and the persistence so, of, the ch- of the students, you know, that are rallying, um, however... Um, we're running up, there's a political bureaucracy at any level. You know, uh, I, when I first became a police officer, I thought I was going to save the world, you know, and then I got a few years on the job and I thought, well, maybe I can save California, (laughs) you know, and then I came down to, if I could do, have a good shift tonight and protect the town, I'm doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. So what I recommend to anybody that I'm dealing with at a specific district, don't get caught up in all the noise that's going on and the debate and the 24 hour news cycle. What are we supposed to be doing right now and use our resources to do the best that we can do to make sure that we are in compliance with all our safety practices anyway. I hope that answered the question. No, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, we've gone so far from you know, when you were duck and cover, that was it, right? Right. It's all yeah, it was is duck mean, and cover. I grew up in Illinois, so it was tornado drills, right. uh, which, you know, when you went out into the hall or you went in the hallway, kind of talked and worried about glass flying and things like that. Now we've got a hurricane coming up the East Coast right now, I'm sure. Right. But those schools are all, that's enough advance warning that they can get out of the way. Yeah. It's not an immediate type and of thing. And here's what happens is uh, when you're asking if it gets better. Part of it that gets better is we learn the lessons from a tragedy Mm -hmm. like Stoneman Douglas. We don't learn maybe the greater lesson, you know, at the global level, but we do learn some of the lessons at the boots on the ground response level. Um, However, the unfortunate reality is the profile of someone that might engage in a threshold event, they're learning the response lessons as well. So that brings me to a thought I have about infrastructure, and we're seeing uh, things in the news right now about how they're designing, uh, redesigning hallways and classrooms and and even entirely new schools. But you've also got the majority of schools are last century or or earlier in some cases. So there's that. And some of the designs that I've seen don't immediately, you know, they're they're building uh, hiding places and, and, you know, rounded hallways and mirrors and things like that, which... uh, Obviously, they've got some intent behind there, and they've got some research that, that goes along with that. It's also, though, if that student, and it's usually a student who is doing the shooting, has attended the school, knows where all the hiding places are, knows all the protocols and things like that. That's what I worry about is that you know, 99% of everybody's learning the right thing, but that one kid, which then goes to a situational awareness and, and background reporting and things like that. I would tell you that um, I believe that there are layers of folks that really think or we're doing the best that we have in front of us sure. based on the information we have to make, make a, uh, a design that would facilitate safety. And we should continue to do that. Unfortunately, there's a layer of predatory vendor 
uh, because uh, there's very little money. And if I can convince you that my gadget will make us more safe Mm -hmm. or my construction will make you more safe, it kind of becomes that I always go back to the difference between feeling safe and being safe. There are many things that we do related to construction or the widget that somebody is selling and we feel safe. Uh, What I would say is if we engage in a process of safety, you know, what are our danger factors? What do we have available? What are we supposed to be doing? What have we learned? And you engage in that process, you'll identify some gaps. And at the end of that process, if you find one of those widgets would help you, by all means, go get it. But you don't start with the widget. You don't start with the widget. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You start with everything and then you see, all right, what are the gaps and then go with the widgets. As far as the widgets go, we've seen a lot of these ideas. And and you're right there. You're seeing some predatory vendors. I'm not calling these people out in particular, but you've got, you know, know, uh, redesigning the entire high school. Then you've got the... um, uh, uh, the door thing with the uh, uh, how to lock the door right. and then putting the belt around the around the you know all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, then some people have gone through and not necessarily even widgets that they're trying to sell the box of rocks the the bucket of rocks or the. Um, uh, you know, like the, the attack dog, they're, the attack dog. They, we, we saw this. I saw this on Twitter and it kind of made the rounds a little bit of the news. Uh, somebody training a dog to go and attack the, to, to find the shooter and attack it. The dog doesn't know what's going on other than to eliminate the shooter. Um, but the widget stuff, we're human people. We throw money at stuff right after, you know, after right. in the event of a tragedy, you think we need to spend money yeah. on stuff and, and, and right. do it up that way, which is a natural, which is an understandable thing, but it's not always a thing. But some of these other ideas, is there anything are, are do you have an opinion on on some of the, on one over the other or in general, try everything, see what works? My thing is try nothing and see how other people it's working for other folks because yeah. we don't um, our idea for sending our children to school is I want her to receive a first rate education. I right. want her to feel safe while she's there. And I don't know that the jury is back on any of the recent design things. And at what I've read, I haven't been 100% impressed on the credentials of the folks and the background. of. I think this is a little bit of, oh, look, I was a police officer for this many years. This is what we should be doing. And uh, you'll hear that, right? You'll hear uh, if you go to your local school district and say, what are you doing about safety? One of the first two things they will, the first thing they'll say is, Safety is the number one priority to us at this district, always. Mm-hmm. And they mean it. Yeah. The second thing they'll say is we're working closely with local law enforcement. I am local law enforcement. I'm not sure what that means. You know, because the first responder to something that happens at a school is my child and her teacher. Uh, and cops are coming and cops yeah. are going to do the best they can. But remember, the the difference in that is the teacher, my ch- the teacher that's there, the staff, their whole job that's referred to as in local parenthesis, they're acting in my stead. Mm-hmm. They're going to put that's their mission, protect my child. The cop's mission for responding is to find whatever the problem is that's causing danger to my child. Mm-hmm. There's a double. And mm-hmm. uh, so and we should recognize not that. Listen, I appreciate the Burbank Police Department and I know they're, they're going to be their lickety split if something happens on my kid's campus. I'm worried about the couple of minutes before that happens. Yeah. That's what I'm focused on. So I can't really speak to is anything working. I'm not uh, with the money that I know our district doesn't have. I would not at this moment support them saying we're going to spend, you know, millions of dollars in some sort of reconfiguration that I can't show really is the end of some type of knowledgeable process. What comes to mind when I when I think about that kind of stuff is almost like you want to hire uh 
which seems counterintuitive to me and not the way to go. But if you want that, that kind of experience, you want somebody who a construction company that's done uh, stuff in the green zone in Baghdad and, and hardened, uh, yeah. you know, hardened embassies and things like that, which is the worst thing I can think of, of having an open campus. You and, put and, your nail on that. There's that. one, there's a company that's, that's out there that that's what it is that they're saying is this is who, this is who we design for. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know what, uh, people get killed in prison and prisons are built relatively, yeah. you know, that it's a, um, yeah. If I can give you one quick example, I do the uh, California has a law that requires every campus to have a comprehensive safe school plan. I'm an expert in that law. I train to it on behalf of the LA County Office of Education. Many districts come. One of the districts, a more affluent district, just the last time I did this training, uh, the guy came and says, oh, I know there's some updates and stuff, but we've got all this safety tough stuff taken care of because we've hired a group of Navy SEALs <laughs> and they're coming in to do all this for us. Right on. That's great. Then we did the training about what the law says, and he comes up and says, we're not doing any of those things. And I said, well, how are the SEALs working out for you right now? And not to take any – God bless the Navy SEALs, but the Navy SEAL has a different mission than the Burbank Unified School District. Right. right. You know, and it's a when, – uh, when I first got involved in this law, what had happened was there was um, – uh, uh, I was in the early 90s, and I happened to be a gang investigator at the time with a background working in, on campuses as a school resource officer. Mm-hmm. So I was nominated and selected to work on a cadre between the state of California Department of Education and Department of Justice, 25 educators, 25 cops. And the idea was we as police, we have some ideas about safety, but you have to be in the room as educators because we can't. your mission is different than ours. Yeah. And that's how the, the law was produced. It has to be that partnership. One isn't more important than the other. Yeah. Well, I mean, with another thing that I've seen is tra- training teachers how to uh, deal with, uh, you know, gaping gunshot wounds or, or other things like that, which I can see that as far as the natural progression of what kids are possibly going to run into uh, on their campus, which is an unfortunate state of affairs. But then about arming teachers and things like that. My dad's a retired school teacher. Um, you, as you say, the mission is so different. Yeah. I can't, I don't know, I know a lot of teachers too. I don't know any teachers that would be particularly in, in, interested in that. You know, I'm also from Illinois and I live in California, so that's a demographically selective there. Uh, it could be different in other parts of the country, but uh, I think most teachers are not excited about that. Um, comments please weigh in um but uh there's no it doesn't seem to be a i'll run afoul of some of my law enforcement friends but i'm going to say that i don't believe adding more guns to the situation is going to help that situation also my mom god bless her and rest her soul was a teacher for 30 years Mm -hmm. i'm not putting a gun in june rossoff's hands Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know i just i I can't see that that's going to make anything better at the end of the day uh in you know she was a beloved teacher in burbank unified Uh, I think that uh, we do the best we can with what we have in front of us. Uh, We stay optimistic about our kids are going to school and receiving a fantastic education. We understand the angst at every level now of delivering our kids to school. Um, And there's that balance, right, about we have to be aware of it, but we can't make it normal. You know, because I want my daughter to advocate. You know, I want her to step up and say in the global thing, I'm going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. But I also want to be able, you know, for her to be able to confidently walk into a classroom, you know, without being yeah. scared of walking into a classroom. So let's that kind of leads into you hear about this stuff every week. Uh, in particular, there was a there was a thing going on in Wisconsin and Sheboygan where uh, there was a social media threat that a 15 year old had made against the school. Uh, they sort of 
they arrested this kid as a 15 year old kid the next day uh, a 16 year old kid was uh, also arrested same high school uh, similar threats it's unclear they didn't release too much information about whether these two knew each other it was the same thing if there was whatever but you know I was a troublemaker as a, as a high school kid this really? stuff was not even this was not even uh, uh, you know this wasn't even on the horizon at the, when I was in high school 30 years ago um, I wonder how you think about obviously you have to respond to things like this yet you can't react to every single thing with the same intensity and that kind of thing you'll wear out and plus you're also right. missing forests for trees and things like that so what's your opinion about that yeah there are levels of response to that uh, number one is there has to be a level of response and the first rung uh is do something mm-hmm. and um uh, most um Modern school districts, law enforcement agencies will have some sort of a partnership that if they become aware of a threat, they'll immediately um, let law enforcement know. And most modern police departments have a response team to that. Now, I'm, I'm speaking about urban, you know, Southern California. Sure. I can't speak to, you know, rural areas that r- might not have the same resources. However, and that response generally is a paper response to start out a little bit first. Who is the kid? Where, who else lives in the house? Are there access to guns? You know, they'll do a little bit of work up first before they go out there. I suppose, does the teacher or teachers know this child, if if this is a problem child or borderline or something? Generally like that, speaking, kind of in cooperation and within the parameters of what's acceptable or not, the school will have a background, a historical background of what sure. type of student we're talking about that they can share with that first responder that's actually going to speak to the kid and, the, and their parents. There's a little, uh, I've had some experience too on the other side is what will happen is because you know... Um, uh, social media is wildfire, and uh, it'll be uh, everyone everywhere will know what's going on. And again, it might not be the most popular uh, opinion in the room, but we have to advocate for the child that actually put it on social media as well, because there might just be a tr- They had no access to do anything that they said that they were going to do. They said something really was a bonehead thing that mm-hmm. maybe at before the years before social media, I don't know right. that I could count the number of bonehead things I might have said, right. but now it's out there and now there's this stigma the police department and the uh, school district feel real responsible to blast out information. Yeah. And we kind of compromised the uh, the kid that put it out there. You know, what I'd like, if, there's, if we're going to respond to these and we know that we are, uh, we should have something in the can, basically, that says this is what happened. There's no threat to anybody. You know, take it to a different DEFCON level. Mm-hmm. But we don't, uh, you know, I've seen police departments say, we got out there and handled it. And, you know, we took the, you know, the kid was immediately taken into custody. Yeah. And they weren't really taken into custody. They went to a doctor's office. Sure. You know, and that, that the semantics of it, though, goes out there and it stays then with that kid for a very, very long time. That's a good point. However, that said, the response has to be something. And the higher the paperwork responses, there are guns in the house. There is a history of threats. The As I'm walking into it as the law enforcement investigator, because we're going to take this away from the school district and law enforcement is going to respond to this. And we should have those resources available to, number one, make sure everybody's safe. And then, number two, put something in place for a plan of action that we give good information out to the rest of the folks, but also we're looking out for this kid. And overwhelmingly, we're looking out for the safety of everybody involved in the school. Um, that's not rocket science. You mm-hmm. know, that's we, we get the information, we respond to it. But we can respond probably more efficiently sometimes than we are now. Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to get going? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I've got one other thing yeah. that I'd like to bring up with a, a similar situation. 
uh, where they told kids not to bring, it was a similar threat, and they told kids not to bring their backpacks to school for the the next two days. Um, I remember back in what, late 80s, early 90s, that sort of some inner city schools were getting the metal detectors and things like that and and armed guards, um, and it was sort of exotic. You know, it was like these must be really, really bad school districts. But this is sort of almost like a logical endpoint when you when you're telling people not to bring backpacks, and it, so eventually their backpacks have to be brought back in. Other places are having making clear, sure that you clear backpack, clear backpacks only. Yeah. Um, you know that kind of detection level. Uh, it's a little scary, but it seems like what other choice do you have? When um, there's been a progression to this too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can take it. Let's go back just after Columbine. Mm-hmm. I remember. Uh, uh, we were doing some work with Burbank Unified, and we suggested that educators uh, now start to wear ID tags that are visible. Mm-hmm. So responding officers can kind of quickly see an adult and, and the educators hated that idea. And now it's tough to, you know, it's a transition from what we were doing to what we're doing sure. now. Uh, when, well, you're both why kids. Did, why did they hate that idea? Uh, it, um, they never had to do it in the past. And also, a lot of them thought it made them a target. Mm. You know, that uh, although if I would have answered if you're an adult on campus one way or another, but our thought was that, at least in law enforcement's thought was, we want to be able to see the good people from the bad people as quickly as we possibly can. Because you remember that in those images in Columbine, all those kids were walking out with their hands over their heads because they didn't know if the gunman might have been. Yeah, who's the good kid? Who's the bad kid? Um, But as um, uh, then probably about 10 years ago, uh, we started removing lockers. Yeah. From uh, from secondary schools, so most secondary schools now there's not a locker for somebody to put there, that it's only the backpack, which means you have to carry a backpack. I didn't yeah. realize. Oh yeah, that. yeah, and that was because one of, kids, uh, somebody might hide an uh, incendiary device or something like that. In back it? in those days, it was uh, it was drugs. They were worried that they would put uh, contraband. I was not aware. That's yeah. well, you never saw Breakfast Club. I was, was going to say the exact same thing. There. Right there. <laughs> so, uh, and now we're at the point where if you go to a football game, a stadium, an arena, frequently yeah. they have the, the backpacks. You got to do the and there's backpacks. there's always yeah. going to be this balance. And then it comes down to like the local jurisdiction of saying, I want to have some say in my school if I think backpacks are a good idea, bad idea. But again, I just want to hear the research. What is it that you've done to lead me? you know, to support or not support the fact that we're going to have clear backpacks and, you know, what, what does a student really need to bring on campus to effectively get the job sure. done that they need to have? Yeah, but then it's like, you know, you have clear backpacks and then then, then some of them are saying, can they have uh, bulletproof backpacks? And then you have some who say, well, clear backpacks, but say if you're growing up in Chicago and it's in the winter and you have a big heavy coat, which you could certainly hide stuff underneath. So. Right. And ceramic homemade guns and things, you know. Yeah, you can absolutely go down the, the rabbit hole yeah. on all this. But when, again, it's the reaction that we say, okay, we just had this event. Um, everybody's on edge. And I think in reading that article, I think what the idea was, we just want to let everybody relax for a second. And maybe it'll take a little bit of the angst away if we say, just bring those books that you need to bring to school and let's mm-hmm. leave the backpacks at home. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether, again, and that was a decision that was made at a certain level. Uh, you'd like to think that it was a logical, it wasn't a knee-jerk decision. But what I like it about it, I'm not 100% sure that I support it, but I like that at least there was a thoughtful thing mm-hmm. that came out that says this is what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Just give me a little bit of information. You know, I feel better the about passion it. passion and the heat of the moment and the aftermath versus rational, logical choices don't often yeah. intersect, at least uh, for a little while afterwards. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's, it's it takes some doing, and it's uh, obviously ongoing. Um, 
so speaking of uh, moving on from that to uh, we were talking about PTSD and you know, you're leading seminars and, and doing action on that. We've got a story about uh, a story that's kind of getting some heat. It's gotten a lot of heat. Uh, and you, know, you, you see this a lot on the Internet, the idea of, uh, of public shaming. And mm-hmm. um, this is this is a classic example of um, of if you listen to the entire story and you listen to the entire tape, it's not as cut and dry as what the headlines are. And right. I think some of the headlines were definitely a little bit irresponsible. But here's the story. A Fort Smith, Arkansas woman died Saturday, August 24th. Deborah Stevens, 47 years old, was delivering newspapers in her SUV at about 430 in the morning. She had driven into an area that was flash flooding and became stuck. So first she called a family member, and then at 4.38 a.m. she called 911. First responders were dispatched at 4.40. They arrived on the scene at 4.53, so pretty quickly. But due to the rising flood water, it was another hour before they could reach her in her vehicle. And the flood water floated the car into a creek nearby. And they tried to rescue her in multiple ways, and she um, eventually she died in the car as it was filling up with water. After 80 minutes after she called, rescuers reached her. They performed CPR, but she had passed. Now, the 911 dispatcher is facing uh, a lot of more than criticism. I think she's facing, um, uh, uh, you know, taunts for her death, as you've seen online for how she handled the call. And Fort Smith police released transcripts of the call and also released the actual call itself. The 22-minute call, as water rose from her neck, um, Deborah Stevens, you know, at first she's calm, but then she's freaking out as anybody would. Um, She's yelling, somebody save me. And this woman, Donna Reno, the dispatcher, uh, responded with, um, you know, at first she was calm, but she was, you know, she, she didn't say what she was supposed to do. That, that's the biggest part. But then she also said a lot of stuff like, I don't know why you're freaking out. You freaking out is doing nothing but losing your oxygen. So calm down. Which can you imagine? I mean, this woman couldn't swim. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the water starting the floorboards at her feet and it's rising and someone, nobody ever likes to be told, Hey, relax or calm down or whatever, particularly when you're having a, a, a a situ- an emergency situation like that. Plus, you can't uh, you can't yeah. swim. Um, but what is she supposed to say? You know, the dispatcher. Yeah. Uh, the job is to calm down. But the job is to, to, be to calm down. But y- yeah, and and you th- you like to think if you're giving somebody the benefit of the doubt, maybe she's trying to do a little tough love. She's trying to just just like yeah. listen, just shush. Keep it together. We're gonna keep it together. But it gets worse. And Renault at one point tells her to shut up, and another time says, "Well, this will teach you." talking about why you drove into the water. I don't see how you didn't see it. You had to drive drive right over it. And when it's 4.30 in the morning, you're out delivering papers, um, you know, and if, you know, you can go in a couple feet of water and then a flash flood yeah. can get you and yeah. then and they take you out there. Stephen screamed for 20 seconds straight and Renaud tells the other dispatcher she is legit freaking out. Stevens told Renault that she couldn't swim, and the dispatcher didn't give her the instructions. Now, rescuers usually recommend that you open the window or a sunroof and get onto the vehicle roof. Because if you're staying in that car, you're basically, you're in, you're in a tomb right there. Right. Eric, is there a, a liability thing there, department, department? I mean, this is sort of FEMA and other guidelines, familiar with this stuff all the time. But um, if a dispatcher tells you to do something like that, is that sort of a CYA, cover your cover your butt type of thing? We count on the dispatchers uh, in uh, lieu of actual first responders 
giving directions. We count on uh, you'd want that public safety dispatchers. Yeah. They do things like walk people through CPR. Sure, yeah. you know, and they're trained to do that, and uh-huh. they're expected to. Generally, on something, I think there's probably some different angles of the story that we're certainly not reading yeah, in the still, mainstream still media. Because uh, you would imagine at one point, uh, because there are first responders that are there that have some radio communication with what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, out there, and so the the not being at all familiar with this communication center. But at one point, there she or someone else can hear what the first responders are doing and what the activity is. Generally speaking, that would be coordinated with the dispatcher. Yeah. I'm wondering, though, because you don't hear, at least I've listened to what has been made available, Mm -hmm. and you don't hear at any point where she's saying, okay, this is what the fire department is now doing to Mm -hmm. try to get to you, or this is, here's what I want you to do, just to keep them engaged, whether or not, you know, it's going to be successful or not. Okay, this is what they're doing now. Can you see them? Yeah. You know, those, that would be kind of what you would think that that would happen. At at one point, I think she says, can you honk the horn? Right. Right. Lights, things like that. But it just, it, it wasn't happening. And, uh... Um, you know, she doesn't give her instructions. They recommend opening the window, uh, like we talked about. The rescuers couldn't immediately find her. She didn't know exactly where she was, and the car had been moving in the water. Remember, it's 4.30 right. in the morning. She couldn't honk her horn. Everything in the car was dead. And um, the uh, dispatcher, Donna Renew, had actually submitted her resignation form for the department earlier uh, in August, and this incident occurred during her final shift. She worked at the Fort Smith Police Communication Center since 2013 and had actually trained new hires. The interim police chief says Renault would be disciplined if she was still working for the department, but doesn't think it would be fireable if she was still on staff, nor would it require a criminal investigation. And it does sound like it was a, a busy morning. Uh, they say that uh, nine officers were out on patrol. There were four bis- dispatchers taking calls, but it sounds like uh, with flash flooding, uh, you're right next to a river. There's a lot of chaos going on, so that may have been uh, that may have been something going on there. Can you tell me when a dispatcher is talking? Are they handling multiple? If there's a say a flooding situation, a bigger emergency response than just uh, a car accident or or someone you know somebody needs cpr are they handling multiple phone calls i don't know there's a way that i could adequately describe for you how hectic a modern communication center is and the stress and the work that the folks do and that's leads back to the whole ptsd thing that we're doing for dispatchers is the fact that we recognize the fact that the first officers firefighters you know that are out there on the line and doing what they're doing um, the the unfortunate reality is more police officers and firefighters killed themselves last year than were killed in the line of duty. Wow. Right. Um, and there's national legislation wow. towards addressing that. Uh, there's no doubt in the world that a public uh, safety dispatcher is a first responder, but at, as far as the federal government's concerned, they're clerical staff. There's no statistics. There's no... Uh, so, oh, really? Yeah, the, the bottom oh, line hmm. is... The multitasking is just one of those things related to the job. The stress of this job is immense. Um, and there's, you know, at least those first responders that are out there. They get that opportunity to actually engage their big muscle systems and such where uh, if you're sitting at one of those consoles and this is going on and all those, uh, you know, the all the stress things that are released inside your body, adrenaline and the rest, um, they have nowhere to go. Yeah. You know, and they're doing the best that they can. And I don't, again, I don't know anything about this communication center, but the standard communication center across the country is understaffed, undertrained, frequently underpaid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some they work a 10-hour shift or a 12-hour shift. 
frequently being force hired back in, you mm-hmm. know, so they're working multiple shifts. There, there's a lot of different dynamics, not in any way, shape, or form to condone this behavior. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's an important story that needs to be told as well that without having that backstory, I don't, you know, it, regardless of all the other things that might have been going on, my question would be, is this a predictable outcome, you know, of the right. rest of it? Not that, not to defend it, but was it predictable because of multiple stressors that might have led up to a moment mm-hmm. like this? Because then you have to wonder, um, you know, certain things. Should she have followed the protocol that we've seen? We don't know if it's protocol for that area, but of getting out of the, you know, ro- rolling sure. down the window, uh, getting on the roof, um, how that could have worked. Could the um, the community, I thought you bring up a really good point with the first commu- the first responders and talking with the dispatcher and coordinating that effort to just at least say that, you know, help is on the way. Um, what they were doing, uh, what kind of equipment they had in their cars, too, and whether that was adequate enough um, in a place that might, uh, I don't know about this place at all, if it floods a lot, you know, should they have Mm -hmm. different kinds of equipment in their cars, rafts, or... She was apparently right next to a a creek that overflows, which added to the the problem and couldn't identify, the caller couldn't identify where she was. So a lot of that stuff makes sense as far as, you know, uh, the dispatchers making every effort to send people there to to the right place. Also, uh, overhearing and listening to this stuff happens to be a couple of unfortunate turns of phrases, and it was her last day. So, obviously, this is a media-ready, and we're talking about it, it's a media-ready story. Yeah. But it does bring up, as you say, these first of the first responders is this person who's getting this call and is basically listening helplessly to all sorts of awful things over the phone. That's definitely yeah. has to, you know, there's probably a reason why this woman is retiring or resigning yeah. from this thing. Um, and there's a, uh, I read this story uh, that doesn't make national news like this, but I've read this story probably oh, yeah. once every two months for the last yeah. year or so. Um, that there's a 911 dispatcher that didn't do something that they were really should have done or said something that they really should not have said. Um, and it, um, again, having been around a communication center, mm-hmm. you know, uh, during simple times and stressful times, uh, I would say that uh, maybe there's a training component, you know, that uh, especially under, who knows, I don't know if this is like a quiet place that just turned into a disastrously crazy place. Or if she was working nine hours and this happened in the 10th hour or something. What, whatever those things might yeah. be. But some of this, all I'm offering is that some of this is um, maybe uh, predictable. Mm-hmm. Some of the behaviors, some people are just maybe not cut out for the job. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And I won't judge this either way. But when I read, this isn't the first time I've read this story and it yeah. will not be the last. Mm-hmm. And I go back to some experience that says there may be a little bit of things that we can do to prevent items like uh, uh, articles like disappearing. And then you have to think now that this woman, uh, you know, I follow a lot of people on social media. A lot of people send me things and tag me in things on Facebook and was running her picture uh, with the with the stuff and, and, and saying, you know, there was a thread out there saying we need to shame this woman. We need to publicly shame her. She's a piece of garbage, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, it reminded me of uh, John Ronson wrote a really good book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, where, um, you know, nowhere near something along these lines, because this was a, a life and death situation. But, um, you know, he talks to, you know, the woman who uh, made that it was not a very good joke, but she made that joke. I'm going to Africa at the AIDS. Do you remember that? And then she was in, on the plane and then she got, got fired when she got off the plane and how that affects people. Um, you know, you talk about PTSD uh, for not, you, you know, obviously 
the, the, the standards are so much higher for somebody that has lives on the line more than, you know, you can screw up in a, in a, in regular jobs, mm-hmm. uh, not as ones as high pressure and there, there's no lives that are, um, uh, go, going to be taken with something like this though. How does this affect the entire dispatch community? Yeah, it's a, um, there's a paint, a very wide paintbrush uh, related to any profession, especially like you said, a profession with consequence. Yeah. Uh, that if I don't do my job proper, you know, constitutionally, as a police officer, there's tremendous consequence to that. A firefighter missing, and the same with this. There's tremendous so. consequence, and now everyone gets painted with a brush. And unfortunately, what we tend to do uh, is we say um, outwardly, we say, "Oh, you know what? We're more professional than that." That would never happen here. But behind the scenes where you can't see, we're going (laughs) better them than us because we know the same things that are going on at Mm -hmm. one place are actually happening in ours. It could happen anywhere. Well, we should say that the the Fort Smith Police Department has, in my mind, done exactly what they need to be doing. They've been completely open about this. They released the transcript. They released a time time chart of what happened, who who did what, when. Um, They've been, as I said, they, they released the entire recording. They're being publicly transparent. They're going to take a lot of heat no matter what way you do it. But obviously the best thing to do is to be as transparent as possible as soon as possible. Every single time. There are uh, some extreme nuanced cases where there are some confidentiality issues Mm -hmm. or you hear the standard, there's an ongoing investigation. Uh, But uh, sometimes those are, pardon the pun, but cop-outs, you know, and other times it's accurate. But I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, been down these paths a couple of times. The more information we share, the faster we share it, and the m- quicker we are to accept responsibility for our actions. We move on to the next day. Life yeah. lesson. So now we have a, uh, a, a, a interesting story, and one of a, a system actually working correctly out of Georgia. A former police recruit in Georgia was arrested, accused of raping eight women since 2015. And here's how they called him. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that Kenneth Thomas Bowen III was arrested and charged with rape on August 27th. Bowen uh, was connected. He was 24 years old, and he was allegedly connected to the cases from the DNA at the crime scenes. But investigators said that the background info he provided in his personnel file, specifically tattoos on his arms and the description of his car, led them to him. The Journal-Constitution reports attacks all happened within a two-mile radius of Bowen's residence. Bowen had previously uh, been a police recruit and had worked for the Clayton County Police Department in Georgia. He was never a certified officer, police said. Fox Carolina reports that Bowen had been hired as a recruit in September of last year. He had been terminated before he finished academy training about three months after he was hired. Police chief says that he was extremely late, four hours, and had lied about the reason, and that's the reason why um, he was fired. Uh, Clayton County encompasses the southern part of the Atlanta metro area. The sexual assaults occurred between 2015 and March of this year. In the March case, Bowen is accused of breaking into the woman's house and attacking her at knife point, and he allegedly fled, fled on foot when the woman's boyfriend came home. And Clayton County Police Chief Kevin Roberts said, quote, had he not attempted to join the ranks of the Clayton County Police Department, it's questionable whether we would have apprehended him. A, now, I question that, though, because if they had DNA from the crime scenes, um, they probably could have run it and run some familial DNA and eventually found him. But Although it's unclear. I mean, obviously, it's got to be different department to department across the country. But are you giving DNA samples uh, or are you just being fingerprinted when you're doing your background uh, stuff 
when you're uh, applying to be a police recruit or a deputy? I am not aware of any place that's actually requiring you to submit a DNA sample, although I don't think we're probably that far away right. from that. Yeah. Right. Um, we uh, should be, if anything, just to narrow it out. That's especially right. for, that was the first thing that crime. I thought of, and then yeah. I thought, yeah. well, wait, they, they probably don't do that. They probably yeah. just... Uh, and it know, could be happening. I'm just not aware of the, yeah. of the fact mm-hmm. that it, that is happening. And that uh, you know your background investigation, a standard background investigation is fingerprints, and, you know, for law enforcement, again, there's consequence to it. So we, we like to think that we're doing the best we can. There's a paper background about financials and mm-hmm. other things we have you submit. Uh, and then there's we go out and knock on doors and talk Good to interviews. folks to try to get a little bit of an idea who you are and what you mean to your community. Uh, but Wait, ever, you know, Why wouldn't you do a DNA test? If anything, just to eliminate you uh, if the you money? left DNA at the scene. Because, well, money, or, know, and it might be a pay for labs too, or something maybe. like that. Mm. Yeah, but uh, pre-hire, yeah, there actually wouldn't be a union because you're not in the union yet. Yeah. But I bet you there's a money thing to it because, you know, you've read the cases where there's DNA samples that are sitting from rape cases yeah. sitting on, That's a big you thing. know, shelves somewhere because they don't have the money to process them. I wouldn't want to be the police department that says we're processing these, but we're not processing criminal DNA. Yeah. What's the most recent? Is L.A. County caught up now? There's a, you know, when we say caught up, they've caught up in terms of they processed them. But my question always is, is that, all right, well, you processed them. What have you done with them now? Still need to. Where are, have you, have you, have you put them all into CODIS? Have you put them all into uh, whatever state database that you have? Have you even gone so far as start working with genealogists to do familial DNA, at least starting with your serial cases? And they haven't, and they won't even answer those questions. So whenever somebody says, yes, I mean, to, to end the backlog and they say, oh, we're all done. You know, we, we have no more backlog. All right. Headline. That's just the first step. Yeah. The next step is, all right, what are you going to do with that? And let's let's hear that. Let's hear what you did with that. I'm a little bit biased because I come from a small agency mm-hmm. and with resources and uh, expectations. So if we had DNA, we tested it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but keep in mind, you know, that Burbank cases that would involve DNA would be relatively a small mm-hmm. section of right. cases. And but, you know, uh, a larger place that's dealing with hundreds and hundreds of cases, uh, you know, every few months, uh, not you know to make excuses for it, but just the person power that's necessary to right. be able to the the first part got caught. This stuff shouldn't be sitting on a shelf someplace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The second part now we start getting into just priorities and deployments and saying, all right, you know the two of you are a team. Here's what we're going to do with that. That's mm-hmm. on your desk now. So a stack of cases on your desk that was this big just got three times as big. Um, but that's what we sign up for. You know, it's uh, you work the cases the best you can yeah. with the information you have. They shouldn't. They went from one shelf to another shelf. Yeah, it's exactly right. You know, yeah. and that that's not okay. Yeah. So, uh, judge, back to this case, the judge denied Bowen bond last week for seven counts of rape and one count of sexual battery. My only final thought on on this is why would this man, specifically in this case, why would you join the police force or it's, try to be in law enforcement when you are a, a violent criminal? It's not unusual. Yeah, you see that a lot. The psychological profile of uh, uh, if may, I if I can get. Be a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm a bad person, but if I can get behind that gun and the badge, it's going to get me into places sure. that I can even be worse than I am mm-hmm. and have less uh, accountability. And, you uh, bet. Right. So, and uh, you know, uh, there's a control factor, you know, and uh, you know, uh, That's good point. This, yep. things that go on that is facilitated. If you know, I put handcuffs and a badge in, on you, you know, it plays into the psychological lunacy that's going on with some folks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Owen, we get comments on True Crime Daily, uh, the Facebook page, I've read and a few the of those. YouTube page. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and here is a particularly sad story that uh, went viral 
was reacted by uh, 3,700 people. It was shared 2,000 times, and it just happened yesterday. Mother killed in road rage shooting while teaching her son to drive. A driving lesson turned deadly when a Milwaukee mother was shot to death in a road rage incident Friday night in front of her 17-year-old son. Just horrible. She was, she was giving uh, driving lessons to her son. She's an off-duty corrections officer, yes, as a matter yes. of fact. And the, the comments of which we've gotten about 500 have gone into, um, you know, uh, people talking about guns. You know, Melanie B. said, but I need my gun to protect myself from mothers teaching their kids to drive, even though I hit them. Makes sense condolences to his family. And then Max A. responded with, she needed a gun. And then that went on for about 40 comments of people Still questioning going. whether we need more guns or less guns. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, people were definitely talking about, um, uh, why we don't have, uh, empathy. Uh, Todd A said the insurance industry, I am in the insurance industry. When I'm taking claims, I often ask, why didn't you, uh, get the other driver's information? Now I know why, you know, you get out of the car, you start trading information, words get heated. Uh, God, um, yeah, you know, somebody, true. Beverly R said, why I stay indoors. Kids learn to drive. In a parking lot, just go back to the basics. No, you have to learn how to drive in a it's in a, a street a, at some point. That's not a solution. That's not a solution. The solution is My don't opinion. don't shoot people. So that's the comment that we. Uh, that, that's one of the strings, and I'm sure that's going to get uh, bigger and bigger as you more find and more that story on on, the, on our True Crime Daily Facebook page. If you'd yes. like to weigh in on that, and it's also, of course, on TrueCrimeDaily.com. That's right. Uh, among our many outlets. So you can check out our content on truecrimedaily.com and on Facebook. As you said, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. And don't forget to download our weekly podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Comments or questions about the show, call us up. Leave a message at 888-548-9758. We love hearing from you. And we might run your comment on the air in a future podcast. Until next week, I would like to say, Eric, thank you so much for, for showing up. My pleasure. Thank you very uh, much. Very insightful, like very, very insightful things. We could talk, we could talk all day. And um, this is the True Crime Daily, the podcast reminding you, don't do crimes. Don't do crimes.